Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Well, welcome over to Product Today. I am here with Amar Kendale, who is the past CPO of both Livongo and Teladoc. Amar, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. So I'm trained as an engineer, uh, but like many folks, I've spent the better part of my career as a product person. And my path was uh, through moving in uh, the marketing side of the house, beginning as a development engineer, but finding myself uh, enjoying being in the field with customers and gradually taking on responsibilities for upstream marketing, uh, eventually taking on the whole marketing function and then really gravitating towards upstream strategic marketing and then ultimately product management. So that's been my windy path. My entire career has been in healthcare, starting out in the areas of drug discovery and drug development, so in the pharmaceutical industry, moving into medical devices, moving from there into wearable devices, and then finding my way ultimately to digital health. So increasingly speedy product development cycles over the course of my career, which is something I've really enjoyed terminating uh, most recently in, in the software space. So software for healthcare is uh, really where I've, I've found myself uh, in these most recent roles. And what drew you to product management? So, uh, you know, starting out as an engineer, I think a, a story that's probably familiar to many, I found myself really enjoying the, the technical problem solving, but often being very curious about why we were solving a particular business problem. And as I spent more and more time with our users, I learned that there was often information lost in you know, what we were being asked to build and what the users were really describing as their pain points. And uh, this was certainly the case in the, in the area of health products, in part because there are so many users or so many constituents. And uh, that's really what drew me in. The opportunity, I, as I saw it, to consider a wider group of stakeholders than had really been considered previously, or at least in my experience, and trying to get more of that firsthand connection and contact to un uncover what those needs are across a, a variety of stakeholders whose needs may or may not have been aligned. And that made it a really interesting problem to work on. So tell me about your experience at Livongo and Telehealth. Tell me about you know, what teams you oversaw there, you know, how a product was organized. I'm interested. Yeah, absolutely. So at Livongo Health, I had the, the, the great privilege to join that company very early and participate in really shaping the product function. You know, like many of these stories, I think every company's needs are different. And so the product function evolves differently based on where there's strength and relative weakness in the organization, what kinds of needs we're looking to uncover. And so the shape of what we ended up building out at Livongo starting in 2015 or so in this digital health space was a product management function that was very closely tied to our colleagues on the clinical side of the house. So we would really aim to build our teams in a way that we were pacing the growth with typically a person coming from the healthcare space and a person coming from either the consumer or enterprise technology areas uh, in order to create some really important bridging of the two worlds. So my org included people who came from great consumer companies 
early product managers from uh, Barnes & Noble, Milkwood worked on hardware and software, a lot of product folks coming from consumer products like Shutterfly, uh, dealing with very high uh, uptime and reliability and great consumer experience. And then balancing that with people who are coming out of places like other digital health or healthcare organizations, some folks with medical backgrounds themselves who are joining my product org. And this really became kind of the DNA that we started to foster. So in some sense, a little bit of a departure from traditional Silicon Valley tech pedigree. This wasn't a team that was composed of, of former software engineers, although we had some former software engineers. We were just as inclined to bring on former designers, former clinicians, and people from the, the healthcare industry as well. The things that we also found to be really important were because we were really tackling a new problem space, this area of, of what I would describe as kind of consumer friction points in the healthcare experience, we brought design into this product org as well. So we had product management underneath the same umbrella as our design team, which I know is, is in some places a common configuration, I'd say in healthcare less so. In healthcare, more typically, we found design to be organized uh, and aligned more closely to, to engineering. In our case, we brought it over to the product management side for a few reasons. One, we were indexing very heavily on user research as a way to uncover latent needs. You know, many times our, our end users, our consumers couldn't really articulate their needs. So we needed to have a really strong research function. And then secondly, a lot of the design patterns really needed to be developed. They didn't exist in a way that was convenient for us to pull off the shelf because we were uncovering so many new behaviors among our healthcare consumers. And so that iterative experience on the early end of the design process in very close collaboration with product management was a really critical piece of our evolution as an org at Livongo too. Yeah, talk to me a little bit more about how you kind of manage that matrix of product management skills. Like how did you balance the different types of people you just talked about, whether they're, you know, traditional software PMs or people that were clinicians? And, you know, did you divide the group up as far as that? Did you have a design lead or are those kind of more interspersed in your product org? Yeah. So on, on the spectrum of project heavyweight versus functional heavyweight, I would say that we, we did orient more towards a functional heavyweight model uh, in our early years. And over time, it, it gradually morphed into a more project heavyweight model. But in the early years, uh, you know, our focus was really building a common language across the functions. And so our leaders would spend time together and really try to shape what is this new process? What is the new framework we want to use to start to bridge these worlds? And I'll give you an example of that. You know, one of the things we started to appreciate was the way that clinical guidelines are often written is a, a very much a provider mindset, uh, which is understandable because it's, of course, you know, often healthcare providers who are writing these guidelines. But we had an opportunity to start to translate those clinical uh, frameworks and terminology into consumer speak. And so the kinds of things we found ourselves doing were establishing a common base of understanding of the literature. So, you know, our engineering leaders and our product management leaders and our design leaders would all become conversant in the clinical topic area led by our, our clinical counterparts. And similarly, our clinical counterparts would become conversant in the design side of things, and particularly user research. That was a place where we shared an enormous amount of those primary uh, research learnings directly with our colleagues. So what would happen is typically in these, in these new areas that we would work together, we'd establish a common set of data 
that we're all looking at together, which then allowed us to establish a common language. And with that common language, then we could start to build new products and services um, on that sort of shared foundation of, of, of common understanding. Now, in the case of, well, both Livongo and Teladoc, the companies grew pretty big, but you, you joined Livongo when it was relatively small. How, how big was it when you joined? How many people? So uh, I joined Livongo in 2014. And at that time, we had just raised our Series A financing. We had not yet hired our first product leads uh, or our first engineering leads. So uh, initially on the R&D side of the house, the product development side of the house, it was really just me and our CTO at the time. And, and we were responsible for, for really building that team out. So we started uh, with a, a single product manager and uh, a handful of engineering leads in order to shape those, those sort of early bets that we place in terms of product investment. And, uh, and we grew it from there. So it really was you know, pretty much nearly a blank sheet of paper when it came to the, the product management organization on that side of the house. And how big was the product team of Livongo when you guys got bought? So I think we were just over 70 people when we were acquired. And that was a mix of product managers, uh, designers. Because our company covered hardware, software, and services, we also had a very strong program management function, particularly focused on hardware, which was, was playing some product management roles as part of their mandate. But altogether, about 70 folks. And then when we combined forces with Teladoc, you know, that brought us to, to well over 100. So it was quite a large org and covering a, a really wide array of products and services. Now, obviously, the business and the product management organization changed a ton from when you first got into Livongo to you know, being CPO of the combined entity at Teladoc, right? Talk me through kind of some of the major stages there and the challenges you had. So uh, that's a great question. The, the kinds of challenges we encountered, we, we, we had the, the familiar class of challenges uh, that come from hypergrowth. And so you know, our user base was growing. As a B2B to C business, we had two large stakeholder groups to service. We had a enterprise client that we serviced and we had a, a end user that we serviced. And so you know, the common issues that come up for a B2B to C service, we encountered all of those issues plus the fact that we were going through hypergrowth. So I'd say those are, were probably uh, familiar, a familiar class of challenges that we encountered as we were growing. And the other you know, class of challenges that we encountered, I'd say were, were specific to us as a healthcare company in that we had a few other, you know, what I would say contributors you know, to our ecosystem, stakeholders in the sense that they had a lot of influence over what we were building and how we were bringing it to market. And so what that meant was, whether that was a distribution partners or whether that was influencers over the, the buying decision, and it meant that our product org needed to build empathy with those other groups as well, not because they were going to be touching the product in the traditional sense, but because they were going to be influencing its outcomes. And so uh, it did create, you know, for a, a more complex substrate, you know, a more complex set of stakeholders that we really need to understand very deeply in order to do our work as product developers. And I'd say that's something that is pretty unique to healthcare uh, in that there are so many folks around the table you know, who have an influence over, over what, what happens in, in making healthcare decisions and delivering services. So tell me a little bit more about the healthcare technology industry, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's an industry with a ton of stakeholders and you're someone who's looking to disrupt the industry, innovate. Talk to me about the balance in working in an industry like that 
with stakeholders that varied, like you talked about, from patients to providers to internal board members? You know, what was difficult? So, you know, uh, what makes healthcare challenging is that there are often misaligned incentives among the participants in a given in a given problem space or ecosystem. And moreover, in many cases, those misaligned incentives are also hidden. And so I'll give you give you an example. Uh, you know, one facet of what we encountered was that our end users are we call them members at Livongo. They're members in our program. They chose to participate in our service. They were living a life typically in the management of their chronic conditions uh, in which their goals were to spend as little time as possible having to deal with these chronic conditions. It's not fun. You know, the right metrics are not engagement. It's actually like, how do I do as little as possible to get the best possible outcome? I want to spend as little time on my health and spend more of my time living my life. So you can think about that as being the incentive for the consumer, the, the member is really what they want to do is get the best possible clinical result that feel the best, you know, feel the best, have to go to the doctor the least, just have the best health uh, with as little investment of time, money, effort, worry as possible. The motivation in the traditional healthcare system for a provider of healthcare services in most cases is to deliver as much service as possible. So most providers, healthcare providers, still get paid on the basis of how much service they, they do, whether it's an appointment, whether you come into the emergency room. And so this is a great example of where incentives are pretty dramatically misaligned. I'm, you know, as a, as a healthcare provider, I don't have very clear financial incentives to do a lot to prevent you from coming in for a visit. Whereas the member, as a, as a person, a patient, you have every incentive to stay out of the healthcare system proper. Yeah. So that's just one facet, you know, and, and there's many of these. And it's, it has nothing to do with whether the alignment of, of, I'd say, moral alignment is there. You know, physicians are, are in, in my experience, always in it for delivering the best results for patients. But the hidden aspect of this is that their financial incentives are different. And so those are the kinds of, you know, I'd say, kind of uh, uh, rat's nests that you know, need to really be uncovered and, and explored in order to figure out how do you construct the incentives so that they align more uh, in order to get good results. Yeah, and that seems like it's still an ongoing challenge and it feels like maybe it always will be in healthcare. You know, I'd say it's an ongoing challenge, but there have been some really positive uh, developments over the course of the past decade. And I'll point out a few, you know, one is that we are accelerating our progress towards a world in which providers are being compensated for good clinical results. So, you know, this is a journey, we're not all the way there yet, but in many cases now we're encountering providers who will see financial upside if they're able to manage or control the total cost of care, you know, limit how much a person ends up coming in for those hospitalizations and emergency room visits. So those emerging models, you know, started with the Affordable Care Act. They're continuing to unfold, uh, you know, through these this past administration as well as in this current administration. I'd say there's there's you know consistency there in terms of everyone recognizes that the healthcare system is broken from a financial perspective and needs to be fixed, and that this shift towards value is going to be a big part of how that happens. So we are starting to see some really great progress. It does take some injection of energy in order to foster these models. You know, so an example that we were able to put into motion at Livongo was we spent a lot of time with kind of sharp focus on, on the experience and outcomes for our member and the experience and outcomes for the payer. So that entity who was financially 
on the hook, you know, liable for those healthcare expenditures. And it turns out that there's actually really great alignment between those two entities. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the member wants again spend as little as possible on healthcare, have the best healthcare outcomes possible. It turns out the payer wants the same thing because that's going to keep their cost the lowest. And so as long as we have those guardrails that make sure that whatever we do for our member is virtuous, you know, we're not withholding care, we're delivering, you know, better preventative care, we're keeping people out of those high cost situations, but we're doing it in a way that's also maintaining clinical quality. As long as we do that, we can align the incentives between these two participants in the ecosystem. And I'd say, you know, of of everything we did, that's probably what I'm most proud of, you know, learning how to figure out because it really has now broken open a new type of business model for the industry in our space, in the, in the, in the area of chronic condition management, that's demonstrating great results uh, for members because they are getting healthier with the help of technology and for payers because they're seeing a hard dollar savings. They're seeing a year on year return on their investment in a way that's very measurable. And so that makes it easy to continue to invest, which is really what I think is going to, to create momentum you know, in these sorts of models. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, there's always those challenges about provider, payer, and then the person, I guess, for want of a better, the patient, right? And it it sounds like a little bit of the provider dissonance is still there. But by having the payer and the patient aligned, it can offset some of that. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's extremely accurate. And, you know, there's there's sort of a number of different solutions for how to bring the provider along and make sure they're also benefiting and succeeding, you know, one is, as I noted, you know, to align the financial incentives of the provider with those of the payer and the, and the member. And so that's starting to show up in some new models for um, what are, you know, what are termed ACOs, accountable care organizations have been growing in their stature. Medicare Advantage is a type of health plan structure where there's financial incentives for more of the participants in the ecosystem to deliver uh, value-based care. So, so we are starting to see these things starting to happen. But yes, I mean, fundamentally, it's exactly as you noted, bringing the provider into alignment with these models that are really driving those clinical outcomes, which will in turn drive cost savings. That's really how things are going to succeed. And in some cases, it means turning over rocks, you know, because this is an industry where there are some very com- you know, comfortable places where there's a lot of profits being generated in ways that aren't as transparent as, as they really will ultimately need to be. Yeah, yeah, we we definitely see that. You have any tips for the the startup CPOs out there that are building product in the healthcare space in particular? I, you know, I, I do, and I'd say that it comes in in sort of two different categories. You know, the, there's the advice that I I offer to the product executive who has come into healthcare from outside, mm-hmm. and then there's a different set of advice I'd share with the product executive who's from healthcare who's trying to innovate in this current paradigm. Well, I'd love to hear both. Yeah. So for the latter, so the the healthcare innovator, product person who's been in healthcare for some time, has probably been very focused on the enterprise side of the equation. You know, that's been sort of the pedigree of where many healthcare technologists have come up. They've serviced payers, maybe they've serviced providers. And the thing that I'd encourage those product folks to do is index very heavily on the toolkits that are used in the consumer space for really interrogating user needs. And so uh, to me, you know, I can't say enough about the value of primary user research when it comes to decoding healthcare behaviors. There's almost no shortcuts is what I've really come to appreciate. It, it's, it's a dramatically understudied area. You know, how we make our health decisions, how we take on health behaviors, 
the myriad influencers of the things that ultimately dictate lifestyle choices, which then translate into healthcare activities and outcomes. Those are things that, you know, in some cases they're taboo. They're topics that people just don't like talking about. In some cases they're hidden and, you know, we don't know, we don't know how to explain what we're doing when it comes to our health. In some cases, they're just highly variable. You know, there's no, there's not enough commonality, you know, that you can find in patterns. So the ability to do, you know, efficient primary research with consumers early and often to me is something that I strongly encourage. And it's something that I'd say is, is still emerging as a kind of, uh, you know, tools of the trade for most healthcare product folks who do a great job of customer discovery with their enterprise client, but don't necessarily have this, the toolkit when it comes to consumer data and, and how they can use consumer data to make better design decisions. For the person coming in from outside of healthcare, it's, it's funny because my advice in some ways is almost the opposite or somewhat counterintuitive, which is to say, forget everything you thought you knew about consumers and otherwise. And what, what I recommend is taking a first principles approach as opposed to trying to leverage existing design patterns. Because what I've often seen is, is there's a false positives that get found when it comes to healthcare problems. You know, a, an executive might come in, you know, having built really great products for engagement, you know, let's just say in, in a different industry and uh, observes a pattern and perhaps uh, jumps to a conclusion, uh, you know, to put it somewhat critically, jumps to a conclusion that this is a familiar pattern, it's one they've seen before, and therefore, you know, a known toolkit can be deployed and some expected results should show up. And I think there, you know, the, the caution I'd offer is that because of these issues of misaligned incentives, those things that seem superficially similar or identical, perhaps, to a pattern that's been seen somewhere else, there's another layer to unpack. And it really requires getting back to the basics and understanding, you know, why is that consumer making that decision? What are the factors? Because there's likely to be a number of latent factors that are hidden. And so I think that is, to me, one of the really big challenges and opportunities for people coming in from outside the industry is, you know, one of the product superpowers is the shorthand of using familiar design patterns, but it can really be a liability when it comes to this problem space. Yeah. I mean, I think that's always a, a challenge is just patterns that have worked before suddenly stop working and people need to identify and, and understand that. And as much as we want to move them from industry to industry, there often are challenges between the different industries and moving them. And, and one of the challenges I think for great product leaders is just knowing when their patterns no longer apply and being able to make that transition. Yeah, that's that's right. And and it, you know, I think it, it requires a degree of humility, you know, that that takes some practice, you know, it, to to develop, because you know, so often, you know, that that this sort of healthcare technology industry is really young, and you know, frankly, there aren't a lot of people in it right now who have been in it in it for a long time. So it's a it's a nascent industry in many ways when it comes to the technology practice and the product practice. So we need to bring people in from outside. We need to welcome them into this space and make them successful. But it does mean that in some ways, these folks need to take a couple of steps back in what they think they might know. And that requires a degree of humility that, that I think, a self-awareness and humility that, that takes some practice. So take me back a little bit to the early days of Livongo. Let's talk a little bit about product market fit and that kind of vague concept. You know, what was your experience with that? Did you have it when you first got there? How did you go about strengthening or establishing it? 
Sure. So when Livongo got started back in 2014, the hypothesis was this, that the area of chronic conditions broadly and diabetes more specifically was an area where consumers were really struggling, trying to figure out how to navigate these complex decisions on their own. And the crux of the hypothesis was if we could support these individuals, if we could make them more successful at making those countless micro decisions that they make, you know, the what to eat for lunch, you know, should I exercise today and how much, you know, uh, do I have time to run to the pharmacy to pick up my prescription, that those decisions were going to ladder up into a meaningful contribution to health outcomes. That was really the the, the hypothesis. So in order to, to validate it, we did something called hassle mapping. So, you know, this was sort of like, you know, ethnography light. We, we watched our, our you know, potential users living their daily lives. We asked them to journal. We did some in-homes and we tried to get a handle on really kind of what were they actually doing? Not what were they telling us that they were doing and managing their health? What were they actually doing? And, you know, the reality we found was people were you know, spending a few minutes a day kind of trying to do the minimum. But part of the reason they were doing only the minimum was they were getting almost no feedback. They were getting almost no reward for those efforts that they were putting in. And so the kind of V1 of Livongo was really based on this idea that there was a, a category of hassles that we could solve simply by giving people more feedback, by giving them some context and insight into what, in the case of diabetes, you know, what do those blood sugar numbers mean? And what kind of actions could they take to get a better result? So that hypothesis, you know, it ended up translating ultimately into a design concept that we we started to call return on invested time. You know, the idea was unlike a lot of things you do in your consumer life, where in a sense, it's unlimited amount of time, you know, to watch YouTube videos, for example, you know, or hang out on Facebook. Uh, It's the opposite. In this case, you have finite time, maybe five minutes a day. And the, the, the question is now, how much impact can we get out of those five minutes that you're spending on your health? You know, how do we figure out what one thing to ask you is the right thing to ask you that one, you're likely to take up and two is likely to move your numbers in the right direction. So that was really the, the way we ended up defining the problem in, in the sort of first version of our product. And we, we ended up solving it with a combination of hardware technology. So we introduced a connected blood glucose monitor, a, a device that measures your blood sugar with clinical accuracy, but also relays that data to the cloud and then gives us an opportunity to apply software technology to interpret your numbers. So we have now the number you just gave us, plus your history, plus what we know about people like you. And so we can give you some advice in the moment uh, with the hope that that's going to improve your numbers. And then where things get really interesting is because we're making these round trips, we can also measure whether that advice worked or not, because we're going to keep looking at your numbers over time. And we're going to measure whether that bit of advice that says, we notice that your numbers are running a bit high. You know, why don't you take a walk after lunch? We could interrogate whether a question like that was actually improving people's outcomes or not. And then the final piece I'd add is, is because you know, our ambition here was to do something fairly smart, you know, fairly sophisticated, uh, we knew that we weren't going to get there right out the gate. So we made sure we had humans in the loop. So we bootstrapped uh, the more complex advice that we knew we need to be able to offer with the help of our own team of certified diabetes educators. So people extremely skilled at giving coaching and advice to people with diabetes in the moment, you know, very personalized, high impact, clinically sound advice. 
so that, that was all of that really rolled together into RV1. And what, what gave us confidence that we were on the right track was that when we combine these components, the connected hardware, the software-driven feedback, and then the humans in the loop, we saw what we hoped to see in the first six to 12 months of our life, which was people were going to the emergency room less. They were going to see the primary care doctor less you know, for unnecessary visits where they didn't need to. The numbers were looking fine. And they felt more confident in their own ability. They felt more empowered to manage their diabetes. So we were doing this in a in a model in which they were really able to um, take control themselves, you know, empowered with information to make these micro changes that laddered up to something clinically meaningful uh, that was going to ultimately allow us to, to demonstrate cost savings. But in those early years, you know, to answer your product market fit question, we were very happy to see the clinical results coming in. And that's really what gave us confidence we were on the right track. Yeah, I was, so I was going to ask you a question too about metrics, but it seems like you answered some of that, but maybe you can dig into a little more, like were those numbers and those answers, those things you were just talking about that data, was that the metrics you ran your business by? It, they were, yes. And, you know, I, I think about them, you know, very much as sort of nested metrics. You know, we had the very fast feedback that we could collect from our, our member directly. And that was in the form of this really high value clinical measure of blood glucose. So, you know, it, clinically important and expensive in the sense that a person's literally contributing a drop of blood, you know, every time that we get this data. So it's extremely precious, very valuable and clinically important. We could, we could act on it. You know, we could make a clinical judgment against guidelines, you know, based on what we saw coming back. Other fast feedback loops we could build around our member were the advice, you know, the kind of advice we could give and then the effectiveness of that advice, you know, so we could, we could measure that as well. So that's, those are what I would describe as the things that were really proximal to our member. And we could use those to make very rapid changes and evolution in our product. As you might imagine, this is something that you don't come across often in healthcare, where, you know, in a sense, the kind of kinetics, the dynamics of the condition itself lend themselves to consumer-oriented interaction and feedback, you know, advice that you can take. And I can see if you like it or not on the order of days as opposed to weeks or months. So that was something really powerful. Uh, the other feedback loops that became really important for running our business, certainly clinical outcomes, really critical. One, because we knew we had to do the same or better as the standard of care. You know, our goal was to do significantly better. And we needed to be able to measure that as firsthand as possible. And that was both to ensure that we were delivering quality clinical experiences and services that were in keeping with, with what was needed from a health improvement perspective, but also because that would be the leading indicator of cost savings. And so, as you might imagine, now the clinical feedback loop, now we're talking about this is happening on the order of months. Like that's the, really the time frame over which you see clinical improvement. And then cost savings is something that you can really start to pick up that happens over the course of quarters or even years. And so that's the outermost feedback loop in our system for driving the business was, are we saving our clients, the payers in this case, are we saving money because we're reducing their total cost of care? And after about 18 months of doing what we were doing, we were able to see that signal. And uh, that really allowed us to open up, in a sense, an entirely new category of customer, you know, the, the mass market customer, not the early adopter, but the mass market customer who really needed to be convinced with data that they were going to save money when they, when they chose to work with us. So how, how did your metrics change or did they change over time? Was it just a transition from those early indicators to the later indicators or did it change as the company grew? So, yeah, that's a really great question. You know, they, they did evolve, um, but they never really changed in the sense that we never lost 
cite or reduce the importance of these metrics. These even now continue to be the core metrics for driving the business. You know, what did change was the scope. And that was because, uh, you know, I alluded to the fact that we started with diabetes, but as we started to do more work in diabetes, we really came to appreciate a couple of things. One, our members who are living with diabetes very typically had another chronic condition that they were also living with. And this other chronic condition or conditions were confounders. They made it harder for that person to manage their diabetes. And those could be things like high blood pressure or high cholesterol, uh, or in some cases it could be a mental health need. And the, the, the coexistence of those factors, the comorbidity of those factors was a real challenge. It, it really complicated things for our users. So we had to figure out how to do something about that. So that increased the scope of the metrics we needed to capture. Because if we wanted to drive the best possible results for diabetes, you know, it turned out we needed to do a really good job of managing blood pressure as well. So the product suite started to expand. We added monitoring uh, technology for blood pressure with a connected blood pressure monitor. We did the same for managing weight. We did the same for ultimately adding mental health support as well. And so those metrics got added. And uh, you know they were all laddering up to the same downstream business metric, which was total cost of care. But those intermediate steps, you know, we needed some faster feedback loops around each of these conditions separately so we could manage them independently, individually. We needed some faster moving clinical markers so we could make sure that those clinical feedback loops were also being closed. And those tended to be more condition oriented, condition specific. And then, and then ultimately those laddered up to the, the sort of total cost things we were looking for. So that, that was really how the evolution happened for us. And I think it's, I think it's powerful, you know, because uh, it really represents in many ways, the reality of who we are as people, you know, we're not defined by a single condition. Uh, you know, that's not how we as, as people think about our own health. You know, we don't really break it out as this is my diabetes task and this is my blood pressure task. We just say, here's a bunch of things I need to do for my health. And often we're looking for help in order to answer the question of which one to work, you know, because uh, reflect back to my earlier comment about the five minutes a day. You know, I think that what we found was it wasn't exactly that number, but, you know, the, the, the general premise that you have a finite amount of time that you can ask a person to spend, it holds whether that person has one chronic condition or five. You know, unfortunately, it's still only five minutes that you get of their time. So, you know, how do you make that the most valuable five minutes it can be across the entirety of what a person is dealing with in their health? Yeah, interesting. I feel like we're at, I don't want to say a renaissance, but there's a ton of tech being thrown at the healthcare marketplace these days. A lot of startups. Yes. Um, what do you think about that? What do you think about this? That what seems like this avalanche of new tech companies going after you know healthcare opportunities. You know, it, it, to me, it's very exciting. And yeah, and I and I mentioned this earlier that the kind of influx of talent into our industry to me is something I'm I'm extremely excited about. Especially as a person who's been in this space for my whole career, it's one of those uh, things where it's kind of like I feel like I was early to the party. And now everyone else has shown up. So it's, it's, it's really a lot of fun. And so, you know, what I would say is there is a lot of capital flowing into the space. And, you know, in a sense, it starts there. The capital is flowing in because there's been some great outcomes from a company building and, and creation of enterprise value perspective. So with those proof points, understandably, we have a lot of capital flowing into the space. You know, having seen a few of these business cycles before, you know, the, the investment gets distributed in a couple of different ways. You, you have your application-oriented companies. 
And then you have your infrastructure-oriented companies. And, and the industry is now big enough to support infrastructure companies in a way that it wasn't even just a decade ago. So, you know, the, these are the sort of picks and shovels folks, you know, who are building tools that are specific to healthcare, but can be platformed across a number of different healthcare application areas. So what I'm hopeful of is that those companies are really able to deliver and get to critical mass, you know, because they certainly have a large customer base that's now available to them of companies trying to build applications in our area. So I, I see that as being something uh, very exciting. At the same time, you know, the, the flip side of that coin is that if that market ends up staying very fragmented, then we may not see enough cohesion to see what that next generation of platforms is really going to be that's going to speed up development. But I'm optimistic. You know, I'm optimistic that in a sense, it's, it's almost like as long as, as these infrastructure companies do a good job of problem definition, uh, you know, which means getting to first principles and making sure they're solving the right part of the problem, I think they're bound to build technology that's going to be reusable and scalable and you know, called upon often by new application developers. Uh, and as long as those application developers are similarly picking good problems and understanding them well enough, then I think that ecosystem can flourish as well. I think we will encounter, uh, you know, more than anything, a talent shortage. Uh, you know, and, and I think this is probably the thing that we're, you know, we're all really gearing up for in this next wave is, you know, where is, where are the great leaders going to come from, and how do we make sure they're successful on the product side, and you know, what kind of support are they going to need to be successful when so often they'll be coming from outside the industry. You, know, you have another cohort of folks who've been in the industry for a few years who are now really accelerating in their own careers as product leaders uh, because of these lessons that they've learned that are pretty rare you know, and precious. And I like to think that the product managers that we developed at Livongo and that we're developing at Teladoc are in this sort of rare breed of, of folks who've, who've been able to accumulate some really valuable experience that's somewhat uncommon, you know, four, five, six, seven years of experience in our space isn't that common. But I'm eager to see how that talent gets deployed across our industry, because it is probably, in my mind, the, the rate limiting factor in, in terms of what comes out. Now, is there one market that you're like, I would love to start a company there or go after that market? There's a huge opportunity here today. Is there something in particular that excites you? Maybe something people are already working on or, you know, should be? Uh, oh, I, I love that as a question. You know, I, I find myself getting excited about a lot of big problem areas in healthcare, which, you know, I feel kind of bad saying it, but healthcare is full of problems and, you know, they need a lot more attention. You know, I would say that, uh, you know, what I alluded to earlier about value-based care and aligning incentives across the ecosystem, that to me is something that's really critical. And, and you know, it, it is something that you can build a business in healthcare without focusing on value, you know, there are plenty of businesses that succeed and, and flourish, you know, on the basis of fee-for-service, you know, utilization-based based payment models. But I believe that, you know, in this industry, that the way for us to succeed as an industry is to build for the long term. It's not for the quick flips, it's to build for sustainability. And the way that healthcare as an entire market is sustainable is we have to take out waste. You know, the, the fraction of GDP that gets spent on healthcare is unsustainable for our nation. Which means what, what should it be? Well, you know, I think you look at any other developed nation. I mean, you know, we're a factor of 1.5x to 2x what the sort of you know next developed nations are with no better outcomes. And this is the key thing. Like, so we're clearly, you know, as taxpayers, we're getting a terrible deal. We're overpaying for a service that's no better. So yeah. I, I would look at that, you know, any pick any, you know, um 
developed you know country where uh, and look at the cost of healthcare as a as a proportion of GDP. It's you know 10, 15, 20% of GDP, whereas we're in the 30s. I mean, it's 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 kind of outrageous to think about. But the, but the reason it's such a problem is not because we shouldn't spend money on healthcare, it's because those dollars could be spent in any number of other ways. They, you know, they could be in, in, invested in any number of other industries where there's there's real value to create for us as a, as a country. So, you know, I look at it from the macro lens, you know, we need to move towards sustainability. And I look at the way to move towards sustainability is to move towards value, is to strip out a lot of the waste that comes from misalignment. Yeah, yeah. And I'd like to think we could do it better than other nations too. Me too. <laughs> the competitive influence, you know. Input that's right. Look at the innovation profile we have. You know, we're, we're certainly capable. This is one too where I really feel like we control all the levers. You know, as a country, we control all the levers. This is all, you know, we're the source of innovation and we're the source of the waste. You know, we're the, we're the cause of the waste. It's, it is all internal to us. And so that helps that, that in a sense, it's, it's a, a closed system that we can, we can fix. So what's your favorite product? Oh, my favorite product. So, you know, I'm very partial, you know, I've become increasingly partial to, to products that solve the interfaces across the complexity of, of multi-mode. So uh, my Peloton is a, is a product I love dearly. And, and I love the way that it takes, you know, the, the sort of multi-domain aspects of hardware and software, of course, on the software side, you know, moving all the way up the stack into entertainment and, um, you know, the, the, the sort of leading edge of engagement, you know, when it comes to, to health activities. So it's a product I absolutely adore, not because I like riding bikes, but because it, it gives me a reason, you know, to keep up my own routine. And what I find to be so effective about the product is for such, such a wide variety of users, that they've been able to really tune into something very uh, fundamental as to what motivates people to, to get on a bike. Another product in a similar vein that I'm madly in love with is the Sonos system. And for similar reasons, you know, crossing this really hard chasm of very sophisticated hardware, very low level software, and very great application experience, including, you know, some really complex integrations. And so, you know, in many ways, those have been my models. You know, I actually think about, you know, in some ways, the audio ecosystem, the entertainment ecosystem, is, it ha- has a lot of parallels to the healthcare ecosystem when it comes to its complexity. Uh, of the constituent parts. Thankfully, there's a, a little bit more clarity when it comes to incentives. But those are two companies and two products and two product teams who I'm a huge fan of. Awesome. I'm uh, I'm fans of those two products myself. I have them both. One final question for you today. Uh, three words to describe yourself. So number one, I'd say curious. And I find myself just infatuated with looking at new problems. And so that's something that I'm really enjoying. Uh, doing right now in this moment in healthcare, as you noted, a, a really kind of a renaissance period in healthcare, which is a great time to be curious, uh, where there's a lot of information out there to learn from. Uh, the second, I'd say, is discerning. And, uh, you know, there was a time when I would have just gone all the way to critical and said I'm critical, uh, which which I, I can be at times, but I think I've, I've now tried to balance my criticality with some more suspension of judgment, uh, which is something that I've learned over the years as a product leader which ultimately I think has made me discerning and I'm, I'm particular now about where I, what I'm looking for in a product or what I'm looking for in performance. And then the third word is compassionate. And uh, I'd say that I've really learned to become a compassionate product person at Livongo. Uh, you know, I've, I've always tried to develop empathy with my end user or my stakeholder, but Livongo was the first opportunity I had to really get deeply connected with the challenges that our, our members are facing at a level that I could never have imagined. And it was everything from colleagues of mine who were living with some of these chronic conditions to 
the direct interaction I had with our members on a routine basis to my own experience and using the products to seeing my parents using the products. So I think, you know, it's given me a, a, a lens into the, the fact that the work we're doing, especially in healthcare, is deep work. And in order to do it well, it requires a degree of compassion and empathy that you don't need in a lot of other industries, but you absolutely need in healthcare uh, to do really great work. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you, Omar. This has been a blast. It has. Thank you for the, for the questions. It's been a lot of fun.